0: Patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone, and welcome to episode 84 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tyloski. Thank you all so much for joining me for this episode. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email list, subscribe to our podcast. And also, if you subscribe to our email list, you can check out our new Ask Our Guest feature as soon as April. This is a brand new feature. Check out episode 81 for more details. Uh, But basically, this is a great way for guests to be able to answer questions directly from our listeners. I hope you'll take advantage of this new opportunity. I look forward to hearing your questions. Today's guest has worked in an industry that we haven't touched upon a lot in our episodes, but something that is very critical in understanding why we are so polarized in our society today. We need to find new ways to integrate media better in our civic discourse. I don't think we've gotten to that point, but perhaps we can get some more insight from this week's guest, Ariana Picari. A public editor for Columbia Journalism Review and advocate for addressing systemic lapses in television news, Ariana Pecari is an award-winning public radio and television news producer with two decades of experience. She got her start in public radio work at NPR, KQED, KLW, KGO, Sirius XM, and WNYC before transitioning to MSNBC. In radio, she produced in-depth interviews and documentaries on a range of topics, conducting research, writing scripts, editing, and mixing. Her productions include features on homeless children, rape in prison, and fallen members of the military. Ariana has also produced several series on topics such as mothers in prison, education reform, and the stigma associated with liberalism. As a producer at MSNBC, she produced an Emmy-nominated episode on public housing, in addition to helping plan a live daily program. Ariana is keen to highlight stories often found beneath the fold that help explain those above the fold. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Ariana to our program. Ariana, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me and for taking up this topic.
0: Well, this is certainly a, a very, very interesting topic in regards to the role of the media in our civil discourse. And with this program, we cover a lot about civility, about other issues to bring at least some of that, resurrect that in our society. Before we get into some of those issues there, though, uh, tell us a bit more about your background and how you really got interested in the journalism career track.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I I have an unusual background, so <laughs> bear with me here for a moment. I um, uh, went through college. I ended up studying English nonfiction writing. I thought that I'd probably either want to do Law or journalism, but I wasn't sure which, and um, I had to work my way through college and um, didn't take full advantage of the university and the college paper and internships that I could have done. So I panicked upon graduation and went to work for Morgan Stanley Dean Witter as a financial advisor, which was a complete about turn from any of my training or interests. Um, They needed women at the time, and I ended up getting hired there and struggled for a couple of years um, through that process and then ended up going to work at a consulting company just outside of DC. And it was really through that commute around the beltway that I discovered NPR um, and I fell in love with it. And so I, at some point I, you know, I I didn't know how to kind of break into it uh, or, or, you know, I didn't have any experience and Um, then I saw in some continuing education magazine that I was getting, they were advertising a day behind the scenes at NPR. So I took a day off of work and went down, um, for that. And I expected it to be a room full of young people like myself trying to figure out the same thing, but it was mostly elderly people who were retired, who wanted to meet Carl Castle and Linda Wertheimer. Um, uh, uh, during that day you know they they alluded to the need for younger people in to work in public radio so i took that as my cue went home found every person i could on the website and then emailed them one of them the poor soul responded and that's how i got my start in public radio so he you know the, this this man was nice enough you know well, send me your resume and writing samples and we'll go from there and we kept in touch. And then, you know, about six months later, something um, temporary opened up at NPR. And that's how I, I, I got my foot in the door. And then I ended up, you know, my first job w- with them was working with the ombudsman um, at NPR. And that was a, a you know, for me, uh, that was a great entree. Um, and then I went through the training program, uh, the NPR training program, um, learned how to make radio and, all that jazz and started getting experience, um, filling in where I could on the, on the shows. I ended up doing a couple of stints on weekend edition. And then from there I ended up moving to San Francisco and, you know, worked at stations there. So that's kind of how I got my um, entree into, into radio and journalism. And it was kind of on the job experience. Uh, and I just kind of made the most of it. So I, I didn't go through a journalism program, and I didn't necessarily come up through the traditional means. I had a different job background, but the, but I, this was my passion. Uh, the first day at NPR, I, I, was, I was starting to look, you know, I was reading something online, and I caught myself when I said, "Oh my gosh, um, I need to." get to work and then I realized no this is what I'm supposed to be doing (laughs) this is my job and from that day on it wasn't a job you know it was you know I I'm kind of did have to take a a huge pay cut when I did that but I loved every day in public radio and um uh uh, so so that's how how I started and I was in public radio for about 12 years
0: wow that's that's super awesome to hear that you you didn't see it as a job you know i feel like that can be very, a bit of a rarity nowadays um to really love what you're doing and and to keep at it so props to you on on finding find, finding that passion uh, were, were there any times when you felt that you wanted to do something else or did you really feel like no this is i'm going to i'm going to do this for as long as i can and and nothing at this point can can really stop it
1: no, I once I was in, I was in, and I love, um, especially in public radio, I love the craft of storytelling. I love the human voice and the range of human voices and how powerful that that really is, and how powerful people's stories are. And I love how um, radio really gets into your head and. Um, yeah, I found myself. The reason why I was drawn to, to radio, I never had a de- desire for a single day to work in television. Um, I kind of thought maybe print, um, but as soon as I discovered public radio, just kind of it gets you in your head and it gauges the imagination. They say you know NPR takes you there, and I feel like it, it does. Um, but I also what I appreciated was so often I would hear a story on the radio and it would be something topical, um, might be controversial. And as I was listening, I, you know, I, I might have certain questions that would come up. Um, but by the time they got to the end of the, the piece, I felt like they had, you know, addressed or answered a number of those questions that I had, that I felt like it was a complete and fair representation of what they were discussing. And that's, That's what drew me in, and um, that's why I stuck with it, because public radio does give the space to be able to have those conversations. And um, uh, I personally just didn't feel like that, uh, you know, I was getting that through any TV journalism. Um, Certainly we can talk more about that later. But um, uh, that's what drew me in, and that's what what hooked me.
0: Well, that's wonderful. I want to now get into... A bit about your career at MSNBC. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, this is a lot about the state of civil discourse, but particularly within our media environment nowadays. Uh, what can you tell us about how you got into MSNBC and really what you started to notice different and things that just weren't working for you uh, as someone who's so drawn to journalism?
1: Uh, Well, it was a bit of a process. First of all, I was, uh, I call myself an accidental cable news producer because it's, uh, again, I I never had um, interest in working in television, but I ended up working uh, as a contributing producer for Alec Baldwin's podcast. He He was doing a podcast out of WNYC and we oddly managed to connect over Twitter and we had Um, similar interests in terms of the topical story so his podcast was mostly cultural and entertainment long-form interviews um the format was similar to what I'd been doing before but um, not as newsy and um he brought me in to do some of the more newsy type of interviews you know so it might be an economist or um a thinker of some sort and um we did that for about two years and then he ended up starting a show at MSNBC and he wanted me to help launch, you know, work on that show and help launch that program. So I agreed. I was, I loved working with him and um, it was kind of a dream job for me. The, one of the other things is I felt like he had the ability to bring in people who otherwise don't normally pay attention to the news and politics. Um, he might be able to bring in some of his fan base, entertainment fan base, um, to reach those people. And so that was in my mind and the combination of his natural curiosity about some of these big topics along with that ability that he, that I thought he was going to have, um, that was a, a big draw. And I was very excited to start on that show. It was going to be a once a week pre-recorded long form interview, kind of the same, you know, the format was going to be based on his podcast. Um, it was only on air for five weeks, things imploded. Um, uh he had a public scuffle and in, inside the building the, the whole process the launch of that show was was um uh very unorganized and very difficult um and so it was kind of a mess on the inside as well so I, I knew that <laughs> I had that experience but then I had just moved to New York and his show got canceled very quickly. Um, I just signed a lease. So I kind of scrambled to try to get another job wherever I could, so I could pay my rent basically. And, um, tried to make the most of it. And I ended up getting hired at, uh, for La- by Lawrence O'Donnell show, um, uh, the last word, which was a 10 PM show. Um, and I knew going into it that, that it was going to be a different beast altogether than working in radio. Um, you know, TV itself is different, but I also understood that the commercialization was going to have some effect on us. Um, I thought, you know, in general, MSNBC, their sensitivities and kind of what they cared about um, was not necessarily out of line with, with where I am um, and the types of stories that I want to cover, but I did understand that there was going to be some difference. And it for the first couple of years, it was a very frustrating and confusing time, because I didn't fully understand what their mission was. And a lot of the editorial decisions felt arbitrary. And so I, you know, we might be working on something, and then all of a sudden, they would cancel it and try to do something else. And as the longer I was there, the more seniority I got, and I all of a sudden, I was in the meetings, planning the rundown with the executive producer, and I—that's when I really came to understand the extent that ratings have on their editorial decisions. And it that all of a sudden they they didn't seem arbitrary to me. I understand understood what they were doing, and um, so that answered some questions in my mind. But then, you know, then I went through this process of, you know. Is it, you know, am I overreacting? Am I being too sensitive to, you know, coming out of the world of public radio where we never considered what was going to rate or what wasn't going to rate? Am I being hypersensitive to that? And is it really that damaging? Um, well, you know, by the time 20, you know, I started having serious concerns 2016, 2017, you know, through, through, the, through the 2016 campaign, I had concerns, but it wasn't until after that when I really, um, started, I was more involved in planning the rundown, that I really understood the extent of it. And so, um, uh, you know, I started asking for advice, where else could I go? And I discovered every, every place in television is like this, So there really isn't any place else to go. So it's like, okay, um, you know, what about another show? And, you know, I did a stint on, you know, another show and realized that no, it's it's the same here as well, you know, so it, it really is industry wide. They they all have the same charter, um, the mission is the same, and you know they they. Um, I, I Over time, I I I just started keeping notes for myself if for no other reason because I you know was like, is this really a problem? So I wanted to substantiate and be able to go back and and look and see. No, yeah, like over time, yes, this really does make a difference, and that's that's what I discovered. Um, over time. Uh, I felt like it really does make a difference in terms of not just the topics, um, and it's not just the topics that they take up. You know, they tend to take up the conflict-driven, polarizing topics because they think that that's what they're going to get a visceral reaction out of their audience. But it's also the guests themselves. So it's you know, they would scrutinize U.S. senators who otherwise they were very popular and people you know were smart and. Um, they would judge them the same ways, um, what it was just on a, and it, on a day by day basis, it was, you know, it, it, did this person rate well the last time, um, or not. And, and so it was really, it was kind of all encompassing and, and that's, that's, you know, but I realized I, I didn't want to be there anymore, but I was trying to figure out what to do. So that took some time. And then once I, we were in the middle of the pandemic, and the George Floyd crisis, and the presidential election, I just, I I couldn't, couldn't stay there anymore. So that's when I decided, um, officially, I, I, I need to leave, even though I didn't know where I was going to go.
0: Bring up all these, all these different elements. And it's, um, you know, I, I try to, it's almost like a headache to just imagine the media cycle from around 2015, 2016, till Till maybe about the 2020 election, uh, regardless of what people think of President Trump, you know, this is not about you know pro Trump or anti Trump, but it really is about the, the environment. And I just I still remember like how much news, how much media was just being like basically squeezed in into every single day, 24 seven, three sixty five. And I want to know a bit more about how that that cycle of the 2016 election and the presidency and up run up to 2020. Um, how all that fit in with with some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, picking the the guests and the um, editorials? What was the environment like for you when you were working in that field?
1: Well, the 2016 cycle, I guess, you know, it didn't take them very long to figure out that Trump was um, a kind of a, a phenomenon that sparked intrigue, um, good or bad. And Uh, I mean, I I mean, so much has been said and written about this, you know, how everyone um, would dedicate so much time to him from carrying his rallies live to, you know, our rundowns. All of a sudden it was, you know, we would leave the lead segment open, not knowing, not having a a definite plan for it, but figuring by 10 o'clock that night. Trump would do or say something that we were going to want to discuss. And so they would kind of say, you know, Trump TBD was how they were going to plan that night's rundown. And then everything else would, you know, fall, you know, after that. You know, certainly the Democratic candidates, um, they weren't getting covered. Um, They might plan to do Hillary or Bernie early on, but then by the time 10 o'clock rolled around, they would just be, um, bumped out of the show altogether. So that you know, there there was a study that showed um, how Trump ended up getting free media coverage. It was uh, five point six billion, I think, is what this uh, outlet ended up figuring. He got all this free coverage, and that was more than Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, all of the other candidates combined. Um, so it, it and, you know, and I understand, you know, at MSNBC, a lot of the coverage and, you know, CNN, there was an awful lot of coverage that was negative. But again, you know, he was dominating the discussion and nobody could else get any oxygen. Nobody could get traction. And so that um, we know, you know, the effect that that had. And again, to, you said, you know, whatever you think about Donald Trump. And yes, I, I agree. But no one should be able to, to, to manipulate the media the way that he did. And he knew he knew what he was doing. And so anybody else can can pick up that playbook and run with it in the future. And so that's, you know, seeing what happened in the past and knowing it can happen again. uh, It was another big concern of mine.
0: Mm. Now, uh, can you tell us a bit more about the you mentioned the polarization aspect and how um, I feel like there's a lot of stories out there that should be told, but obviously they don't they don't get the ratings what can you tell us more about that process of picking the, the stories that get more ratings? Like, is there a lot of like, kind of data collection? Or is it like, based on just relationships? Or is a combination of what, what can you tell us more about that sort of process there?
1: I mean, it's not a perfect science. And I making you know, decisions based on what rates or what they think is going to rate well is, you know, I think it's a terrible way of Making editorial decisions in general, but it's also not always accurate. (laughs) You know, they, you know, what rated (laughs) yesterday might not be interesting to people today. There's no real satisfying answer um, to this, but I, you know, over time I found that um, the more flamboyant or more intriguing a person was, the more likely they were going to get on air. You know, there was an example. I, th- I think this was June of 2020, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had made some out, al- you know, she had a, a run in with another congressman and she was, um, you know, alleging sexism in the house of representatives. And um, that's, you know, wasn't necessarily wrong. And she, you know, she kind of made her statement on the floor, but that sort of, material, we actually had um, representative Katie Porter booked that evening to talk about her plan for COVID. And Katie Porter is, um, you know, she was elected at the same time. She was also very popular, um, especially for the MSNBC audience. Um, But she, you know, she was, she flipped a red district. And so she wasn't quite as flamboyant or out there as um, AOC was or is. And, um, you know, her topic was something serious and they, you know, she had been, you know, confirmed for, for several days, which first of all is not exactly normal. We tend to plan shows on a day by day basis. You know, they decided at the last minute, no, we'd rather have some pundits in to talk about AOC and, you know, what she has said, because there's good tape of her on the floor today, we'd rather have her than to talk with Katie Porter about her plan for COVID. And it, you know, that's, I don't think that, you know, I I don't know why it was a choice between the two, but that's, that's how the rundown fell out that day. Again, that I have many issues with, with, that whole process, but that's the choice that they made. Um, and they, you know, they blatantly canceled Katie Porter because she wasn't willing to come on and talk about AOC and what she said that day. Um, so that's one example, um, but it's one of many. And in general, people who tend to be a bit more nuanced, um, people who might be, you know, a little more wonky, um, they don't necessarily, they, they weren't necessarily going to be at the top of the list. You know, they're going to go for the people who are throwing flames, um, much more so than, than someone who, who strikes you as a as a more reasonable person.
0: It's it's so unfortunate how when I see and watch stories about the state of polarization in America from some mainstream news source, but then then you see examples like that. That for me, and maybe for a lot of people, I think are just wondering what is going on here. You know, it's it's almost like. You know they run one story on the state of polarization. Yet there's a, there's probably so many examples of, of what you what you pointed out. And uh, I want to now look back at that day when you posted on your blog, uh, August third, twenty twenty, about your decision to leave MSNBC. And you know I I'll obviously let you kind of tell a bit more about the backstory there. But tell us about you know, how you came to to writing that post and what that posts kind of encapsulates based on your experience and your feelings about how how media uh, is run nowadays
1: i had just gotten to the point where i can't do this anymore i just i didn't feel like the decisions the editorial decisions were were rooted in journalist journalism a um and certainly no journalistic ethics um and it it just it, it was there were so many different <laughs> examples. Um, I can't go into all of them right here, right now. But it, w- it was pretty much on a daily basis. I was getting frustrated about and watching um, these decisions that they would make. Um, you know, we you know fi- finally you know there were there were times you know through that that summer there was a you know, information coming in about COVID. Would try to to book a scientist to talk about that. There were lots of discussions about the economy. Um, one particular day, there was a, a, a report about how the economy was adversely affecting minorities and African Americans. Um, I had, you know, kind of suggested and, and and encouraged them to do a segment about that. And they decided to do it. But late in the day, the host came in and said he didn't think that it was going to rate very well. So they canceled that and they canceled the Economist that they had booked for it. Um, so I was, I I just couldn't, couldn't do that anymore, especially in the middle of all of these crises and the pandemic started, they started, they, they covered it in earnest as they, as they should have. So they were focusing on the science. They were talking to doctors in ER rooms. They were, you know, getting frontline workers. And that is, you know, we were in emergency situation and, um, I felt like, okay, you know, they know what, they know what, what their job is and they know how to do it. Um, And they ended up, they started, they planned, they started doing a weekly special during our hour hosted by Dr. Zeke Emanuel. And it was, you know, the full hour was to talk about COVID and all the different issues related to it. And, um, after a couple of weeks, they discovered that wasn't rating very well. It wasn't rating as well as they thought it should. Um, and so they bumped it back to Friday nights and then eventually canceled it because it wasn't, they didn't feel like it was rating as well as it should. That process landed me, um, I, I decided I, I, I'm not going to re-up. Um, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I still didn't know what I was going to do at that point, but I couldn't... Nothing about that job was satisfying. I decided I need to, to figure you know, something else out. I didn't know where I was going to go. Um, I still... <laughs> Don't oh, know where, where I'm going to go. I'm um, <laughs> still working on that. I'm, I'm working on putting together an organization, um, but it, that also is another process. I knew when I resigned on a, on a, you know, through all, all of these editorial meetings, they knew that I didn't think that they were doing the right thing. So um, there was no question as far you know where I stood in terms of the editorial decisions that they were making, and you know I even challenged the president of the network. Um, a few weeks before I've resigned in a, in a meeting that we had. So I knew why I was leaving. They knew why I was leaving. Um, I, I told them I didn't, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I can tell you right now, you know, my frustrations are with the industry. They're not with you, my colleagues, you're doing your job. And that that's one of the problems as, as I saw it, I don't know where I'm going to go, but you know, I, I wish you all well. But, and then when I wrote my post, I really didn't expect it to get much attention. I, um, I thought I might get a handful of people who I used to work with you react to it, you know, on Facebook or, or what have you, but it got a lot more attention than I expected, which in my mind was, was a good thing. But I, when I wrote it that I more so wanted to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And this is why. So as I move forward, I could point to this and say, this kind of explains who I am as a journalist and what's important to me. And these these are the reasons why, um, and so that—that that was my intention in writing that post. More than anything, I'm, I'm glad it resonated with a lot of people, and so that—that—that that, that was the the thought process going into that.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing about the lead up to the post because when I read it, I thought this is one of the most honest things I've seen from directly from someone who formerly worked in. In journalism now, not to say that people, as you as you pointed out, I think I think you have the right approach, which is it's not necessarily about the people themselves, it's the industry. Um, And I and I'm also wondering a little bit about the the leadership aspect because obviously, I mean, even though we're talking a whole industry, there's there's different networks, right, with different leadership things. So how how much of the of the financial incentives in media in industry is is coming from the leadership or the particular people run these, these networks and the connections that they have, or is it, is it merely just purely based on the, the technology and just the way that we consume news that kind of fueled the way that, that news uh, media organizations get, um, get money from ratings and all that.
1: A lot, I I will say some of this is self-imposed. And it's self-imposed because there are financial incentives built into the, to the management structure. Um, meaning hosts get ratings bonuses. Um, if they hit certain numbers, um, they will get a 10% bonus. So if you're making $5 million a year, um, which is not unusual, then you get an extra $500,000. Um, if you hit your numbers and, that's a significant incentive. So people make these decisions on their own. And I, I remember one night, not long after, and the top producers also get those bonuses. So it's, it's the decision makers in the process who are or, or especially are incentivized to make those decisions. And, and going back, you know, in our, you know, in the, 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 the wider editorial meetings or staff meetings that we have, they don't talk as much about what rates well versus what doesn't rate well. But it was in the, the smaller meetings with the, the, the top producers on the show where they're, they're, they they're were much, you know, they're, you know, they had loose lips in terms of discussing what was going to rate, what wouldn't rate well. It was often the first thing out of their mouth, you know, when I suggested an idea or anyone suggested an idea. Um, uh, that was kind of the, it was front of mind for them. But it was, it's interesting that, you know, you asked that question because there was a night after George Floyd Um, was killed. And there were the protests had started, you know, the the video was out. It was early on. But they asked, um, the president asked if my host, Lawrence O'Donnell would do a full hour on George Floyd. And what happened? And my host is, is, you know, there there was, I'm sure there was a reason why he asked that, because he's, he's somewhat of an expert on um, police use of force. He's written extensively about this. He wrote a book called Deadly Force, Uh, his father had been a Boston police officer and then uh, a lawyer who represented cases. Um, He knows these issues inside and out. And so Phil Griffin asked if Lawrence would, would do this hour. And my, the executive producer, his initial reaction was um, he didn't want to do it because he thought it was going to tank the ratings. You know, they, at that point, you know, they wanted to stay focused on Trump and, you know, how he was handling the pandemic and all of the politics um, that was going back and forth. He didn't <laughs> want to turn away from that coverage because that's, you know, that was rating well. And that's what everybody wanted to do to to, to cover this story about George Floyd, the, the man um, who, who died in Minneapolis. And. You know, maybe Phil Griffith knew that you know it would ultimately rate well. But my boss, my executive producer, who was my immediate supervisor, his his initial reaction was, "That's not going to rate well. I don't want to spend a whole hour on it." So again, it's kind of self imposed, but it's imposed because of these financial incentives um, that are built into the process.
0: Great. I, I gosh, you know, Trump obviously comes up so much. So a lot of people, probably like myself, are not surprised by. You know, something like that or or that kind of a re- reaction you you mentioned how you you're kind of like a free bird now you know you're you're kind of going out and 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 do and be more freelance um obviously you've done a lot of different stories about uh various different topics what has it been like to 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 now be out of msnbc and looking for new ventures uh, what just um what has it been like to do that, not only do that, but also uh, really look more into the, to how we can restructure financial incentives. So, kind of the things that you're thinking about, or things that you want to look more into in the future.
1: Well, I've been writing for Columbia Journalism Review, and so that, that's given me an opportunity to to talk more about um, what I see are the structural issues of the industry, kind of on an ongoing basis. And you know, as I said when I resigned, this is not um, about the people who I work with. This is about the, the structure of the industry and the um, reliance on those financial incentives to, to pay our salaries. So it, I, I, first of all, I haven't missed being at MSNBC <laughs> one day. I'm happy not to be there anymore. Um, it's been, I will say, it's been very difficult though. Um, you know, trying to do what I want to do is, is enormous, which is force the industry to have a reckoning of some sort. Um, we know um, what the what the problems are, ideology and bias that's always going to exist. But it's just amped up that much more by these financial incentives. There was a study done after the 2020 election and going into it looked at cable news coverage through the January 6th insurrection. And cable news did as much to amplify misinformation as anyone else. They, They were repeating this material on the screen, even after you know Trump was kicked off of Twitter but they were still showing those tweets you know weeks after afterwards that contained false information and they do that because they know it's going to there's some journalistic reason to do that at some point but to the extent that they did it it was it was because they knew that, that that's going to rile up the audience one way or the other so l- looking at that and knowing what what that is it's hard for me just to walk away and say oh that stinks there's nothing we can do about it and unfortunately a lot of people have that opinion, even veterans of the industry or academics, people who see it and understand the problem and wish it weren't that way. There's a lot of cynicism. There's kind of a lot of apathy. The Aspen Institute did a report of several months ago uh, about disinformation and misinformation in the media It was an 80 page report and I was excited to read it. I wanted to to know what they came up with and they barely mentioned cable news at all throughout this entire report. And, you know, they mentioned cable twice throughout the whole, the word cable twice, uh, Fox news once in a footnote and they didn't mention CNN or MSNBC at all throughout this report. And I was a little just I was shocked because it's it, when you talk when you're talking about these problems that I don't know how you can just ignore the role that cable news has in all of that. There are people who who feel like cable news is kind of a dinosaur. Don't worry about it anymore. It's dying off. It's not that influential. And I disagree wholeheartedly, because when you ask voters where they get the information, you know, by and large, you know, the last two elections, um, It's been cable news where they get their information. You know, when you look at hour by hour, their ratings, their numbers might not be that big when you think about, you know, the the U.S. population overall. But cable news is on 24 hours a day. So if you're trying to compare those numbers against the nightly news, which is, you know, let's say total audience per hour in cable news is one to two million viewers an hour. The newscasts, the nightly newscasts on the networks, you know, whether it's NBC, CBS, or ABC, those numbers are more like six million. But that's only thirty minutes, and they don't really cover politics. You know, they they might, you know, they'll they'll touch on kind of the headlines of the day, but then they, you know, will move on to other subjects. So you're not getting twenty-four hour coverage of these topics, and so it's a little bit frustrating for me trying to make, make that argument that. The cable is something that we need to pay attention to and, and focus on because I hear people repeating things that I know they heard on cable news, whether it was MSNBC or Fox. I, I, I hear it in personal gatherings, and it, it's just, it, it kind of baffles me to think that cable news is not a problem and it's not something that we should really spend time focusing on. I'm, I, I'm having a little more luck now getting people to listen. And well, you know, the, the other problem is, A, there's the, the First Amendment. So freedom of speech, like you can't really dictate what, what journalists, you know, what these outlets, in theory, they're journalists, you can't dictate, you know, what, what they can and can't say. Um, there was the Fairness Doctrine that was repealed, you know, do you, he can't really fight that fight again. I understand that. But I feel like there are other things that could be done to incentivize them externally. They might not, you might not be able to shame them altogether, but I think by educating the the audience and the public about how they function and this idea that this is hate for profit, very few people are are benefiting off of this. By and large, the public at large, the audiences, they're the ones who are suffering. Very few are benefiting at their expense. And that's our democracy right there. That's what you know my focus is and what can we do i think that uh, you know kind of a, a massive public awareness campaign about cable news and you know how they make the decisions that they make and they're doing it for profit they're not doing it for the you know the betterment of, of everyone they don't think about public service cnn you know they they've gone through some you know a change in leadership recently, the board members and the people leading the stockholders of the people who who run Discovery, which is going to be taking over CNN, the people at Time Warner, they've been asked, what do you think about CNN? What about CNN plus, and they refer to those news outlets as quote assets, well, we think this is a good asset. So we're we're, we're sticking with it. That's the monetization of news. And that's how that's how they think about it. Those are the people who are in real control. And so I think part of this is educating the audience about, A, the incentives that are built in and how that affects editorial decisions on a daily basis. B, br- kind of break down the financials. I think that, you know, the fact that CNN made a billion dollars in profit in 2020 says something, that's profit, that's after cost, that's not revenue. That's They made a billion dollars in, in profit, Fox made I think more than $2 billion in profit the year of the pandemic. And it, it affects everyone across the spectrum. You know, it, you know, MSNBC and, and Fox News might look different, but they they're functioning the same and they have the same motivation at this point, Fox News, you know, they, they, and off, oh, you know, some of their on-air personalities have been pushing ideas that are anti science are not based on science and are wronged or uh, might be pushing ideas, you know, about elections, they're doing it not because that's what they believe themselves, because Fox News has a vaccine mandate themselves, like they, <laughs> like they believe in the science. And so enough to the point where they made all of their employees get the vaccine. But on air, it's, it's a different story. There needs to be a public awareness campaign, helping people understand how it works, but also coming at it from a nonpartisan perspective, because it really does affect everyone. It might look differently on the different networks, but the the underlying motivations are the same and um, it it affects the accuracy of what you're, what you're getting on air. And so that's, that's part of it. But I also think that, okay, so I don't like cable news. I understand it. It's bad. Um, I understand it's not really good quality. Then what, where, where else, you know, where else do I get my news and information? Most people don't have time to, to, scour through all the different news stories every day, whether it's print or, you know, I I prefer to read and listen to my news, but that does take, take more time. It's easier. And most people, you know, we know prefer to watch the news. That's where most people, even online or even on their handheld devices, who is generating that content. For the most part, it's going to be coming from cable news. I mean, there are, you know, there, there are other sources um, that have bubbled up. But for the most part, it, you know, that material is coming from cable. There needs to be some other 24-hour news source that is TV or video that is trustworthy. It's worth spending time looking um, what else could we be doing to, to generate content that is interesting. I mean, it doesn't have to be boring. There, in public broadcasting, you know, PBS, there's really only one hour a day that's the news hour. It's quality, um, but A, it's it's only one hour a day. It can't compete against the 24-hour news cycle on cable. But I also feel like you can be generating content that is much more diverse, reflects different communities across the nation, and that's urban and rural. Um, I think there's just a better way to go about providing the news, telling the news, in a much more diverse way and, and interesting. It wouldn't take very much creativity to, to come up with, with a, a better source than what we have now.
0: First of all, I really commend you so much for embarking on this adventure to really broadcast the ways that the media industry is essentially feeding itself. It's a really something that I hope lawmakers and policymakers and Voters and whoever is involved in the political process can really understand more about why this industry acts the way it does. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge really the importance of your mission. The second thing is a question about just civility more broadly, which is, out of all this, what do you think every single person in, in this world can do to Broaden the arena of civility without or with very minimal influences of ratings, of bonuses, and the other things that cannot and should not conflate with the sustainability of our political environment.
1: I would say, first of all, don't watch cable. Don't reward them for the work that they're doing. Try to turn that off. You know, if you can find a few sources, you know, I know time is limited, but find a few sources that you feel are reliable and, um, are, um, trying to, to be honest with you. Again, you know, I feel like NPR is, is, um, a good source for that. They're not perfect and, um, no newsroom is perfect. And that's the nature of the news. You know, you're writing the first draft they do get things wrong. We all have our own biases. You have to have that realization um, that no source is going to be perfect. But I can tell you um, in public broadcasting, they're trying to do their best. They're working in earnest to try to to generate um, news around the clock that you can use and is reliable and and is is an honest um, portrayal of the world that we live in. The other thing about social media is we're all kind of in our own bubbles now and I think it's really I would encourage people to try to get out of that as much as possible. Don't spend so much time on Facebook because I see Facebook does it to me. you know It's like what shows up in my feed are people and stories that probably think like me. And I intentionally I don't unfriend people who I disagree with on purpose because I don't want to you know make that bubble even bigger or worse. But that sometimes that just means getting out, um, off get off your device, go to an, an event, you know, what might be small community events going on. And, and I've done that myself. And I come back and I'm like, I would not have had that conversation if I hadn't gone to that event. I didn't really want to go. It was, you know, <laughs> I didn't really expect much from it. But I saw people I was forced to interact with and be civil with. Otherwise, I you know I might have a certain grudge against a certain person, so I might not interact with them. But when you see them in person, you kind of have to be nice. And you can't just like I, people are not as likely to be jerks um, in real life um, as they are online. And so I would say as much person to person in real life interaction, um, I would I would encourage that as much as possible.
0: Very well said. Yes. Get get out of the house or uh, find find some kind of activity where you can interact with someone and otherwise I'm just I'm just tired of the this have you you've probably seen a lot of the slow news day or one of those moments when you've seen a series of stories and I'm just like I feel like nothing's really happening, but you're just kinda of, this news network is telling me like, you know, the effect of stuffed animals on people's, you know, well being in supermarkets or something. I'm just making something up. But you, you just see that and i like I think people should get out more, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the story about the stuffed animals in supermarkets, they think that that will appeal to a certain demographic, and so that's why they will do it, instead of talking about how difficult it is for, you know, whether it's immigrants or police officers. Like, they just don't, they those stories are out there. And you, we could tap into them, but they just, they they feel like, they don't want to get in the weeds on this stuff. They feel like the audience doesn't have the attention span for it. Um, and I actually, I think that they do. I think, you know, I think humans are naturally curious and as long as they're learning something new, they're going to continue to listen or to watch because that it, it, it's in our DNA to, to, you know, if that's something I don't know, I feel like I need to know it for, for survival, you know,
0: right.
1: <laughs> or yeah. you will, you will continue to watch or listen.
0: Yeah, stuffed animals in supermarkets. Not so much for me. Um, unless it's like the the giant teddy bear in Costco, which I can't find anymore. <laughs> but I, I need to get one of those because, y- <laughs> you mean you, you never know. I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. Com-
1: these days, it would be nice to, to cuddle up with a big stuffed animal. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so Ariana, before we wrap up our our program today, you know, as you as you might know, and as uh, many in the audience know you know this show is a lot of based on on Washington's farewell address really some of the values that kind of come out of that speech that he delivered in 1796 so out of the the, the six pillars that I've outlined which are patriotism faith national unity education fiscal responsibility and civility Out of those six, what is one or more of these pillars that you think really stand out in terms of the conversation we had today and and really just um, the the issues and platform that that you have nowadays?
1: Um, Well, I would definitely have to say education and civility. The more you know, the more you want to know. Ignorance is you don't know what you don't know. Um, So the more you learn, the better we all are. I I believe in that from just a, a humanist perspective, but also... Thinking in terms of the, the strength of the country, you know, uh, our, our standing in the world, we need people um, to be better educated. And and sometimes I feel like I should probably spend more time on education than, than journalism because some people say uh, cable news looks the way it does because that's what the audience wants because they aren't as educated as, as they as they should be or could be pandering to, to the lowest common denominator and um, trying to get the biggest audience that way. I mean, that, that's a very complicated subject, but I do think that um, having more critical thinking um, in our schools would probably be um, a good thing for everyone. And obviously learn more about a how government works, what works, what doesn't work are we really being represented. Lawrence Lessig uh, wrote a great book a few few years ago called They Don't Represent Us. And he's quantified to a full extent how our governments work from the federal level on down and what we could be doing differently. I don't know what the right answers are on that front, but, but the more you engage on that, um, I think the better off everyone will be.
0: Absolutely. Well, Ariana, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story. And I just want to reiterate once again, um, I know that after you left MSNBC, you know, you're off to new ventures, and all that. But I, I really think you share a very important message for uh, for people of all walks of life, because at some point, right, everyone encounters cable news or social media picks up a newspaper. I I still, I still get uh, paper versions of the Wall Street Journal. So, of uh, I, I, maybe I'm a little old school in that sense. But <laughs> you know, the way we consume information is, in many ways, perhaps more important than just the information that we get. Because when we look at the system and how things are repeatedly created, that's when we can maybe find more solutions and be able to to stop some of this systemic polarization and this division that we we don't frankly need and we don't really want inherently uh for the most part what what are some ways that people can learn more about what you're doing and and uh what you're up to i'll obviously link those in the show notes below but if you just give a quick summary uh that'd be great i'll leave that down the show notes for the audience
1: sure thanks we'll be making an announcement soon about a new organization um so uh, I will certainly make it there and on my personal website. And so my Twitter handle is Ariana at Ariana Picari. So my website is Ariana Bacari.net. And I am, you know, writing uh, periodic columns for Columbia Journalism Review. So you can find my work there. I think those are the main, main places.
0: Great. I will link those down. Again, Aria, thank you so much for, for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. And thanks for, again, for taking up this topic.
0: All right, everyone, that'll wrap up our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ariana Picari. This critical topic about the media, about polarization, I hope we'll continue this conversation on Friends and Fellow Citizens. Make sure, and once again, to subscribe. Check out the links down in the show notes below. Have a great rest of your day and rest of the week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.